Welcome to Close the Door and Come Here, a Game of Thrones and a Song of Ice and Fire podcast with heavy leanings towards our two favorite characters, Jamie and Brienne. Man, there was a bear bear, all black and brown and covered in hair. Hello, I'm Lot, Lady of Tarth, hyphen posts on Tumblr. I'm joined with Eon. Hi, this is Eon. I'm Eon Blue Negative on Tumblr. YD. Hi, this is YD, and you can find me at Yellow Delaney on Tumblr. Chicky. Hey, this is Chicky. I am Chickren on Tumblr. And our very own Oberyn Martell, Guile. <laughs> <laughs> this is Guile. I am Guile and Subterfuge on Tumblr. She can be our champion. And she is. <laughs> um, we <laughs> are. Say, and she has. <laughs> and but now I'm be. dead. Oh, spoilers! <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Anyway, this is uh, Game of Thrones season two, episode ten. We've completed another season Yay! of Game of Thrones. Woo-hoo. We sure did. Looks like we made it. And the worst one. This should all be uphill from here, right? <laughs> yep. Oh yep. yeah. Yep. <laughs> Season three. We should probably say season three is on the horizon after season five. We're yeah. excited to get to that. Yeah. We should just skip From watching this episode, I think Danny's really going to make it to Westeros next season. Uh, <laughs> sure. No doubt, right? Yeah. I say we just skip season five and just go straight to season three. <laughs> Silence. Right, I'm on board. Okay. Um, oh, so I'm down. I'm down. Okay. Chicky's on board. <laughs> so as always, um, we have a blanket spoiler warning for books and show and, uh, rape, uh, will most likely be discussed because it is Game of Thrones. So let's begin this episode. Um, and it's Tyrion. He awakens. He yells for Pod and then he asks him to get Braun or Varys. He is very much alive. Left alone with Pycelle, he asks what has happened. He's informed that Stannis was defeated, and uh, Tywin seems to be getting credit. Pycelle informs him that this new cramped space he in, is in is his uh, new quarters, and he is no longer hand, and Pycelle is quite gleeful about this news. He flicks a coin at Tyrion and says, for his troubles. Then he leaves him. Um, we get a small bit. I love this scene. Yeah, let's stop here if you want. It's so cool the way that it's shot, don't you mm-hmm. guys think? I mean, I think it's just, it's, it really, it really illustrates really well what this moment is like for Tyrion. It's dark, it's confusing, where am I, you know, what's happened? You just get this feeling that something has changed. It's really pretty clever the way that they did it. I think it, I think it was really well done. And I love Pycelle in this scene. Mm-hmm. Julian Glover really dialed it in, man. Yeah. Going back to what you were saying about the way that they shot it, particularly as the scene is opening and you get that close-up of Tyrion's eye with the, the flames sort of flickering across it. Um, yeah. In the book, You've got Tyrion drifting in and out of consciousness and you have his muddled thoughts kind of flitting back and forth between the memory of battle and his dreams and what's actually happening around him. And it's it's a really effective piece of writing and obviously they can't really capture that so much here, but I think that the the eye and the fire imagery worked really well just as a little nod to it. So, yeah, I really enjoyed that too. Um, and yeah, Pycelle, I mean, he's getting his little bit of revenge here, isn't he? Mm-hmm. With the, uh, the whole <laughs> for your trouble. I don't know if you guys recall, but back when, oh, I don't remember what episode it was, but it's when Tyrion, 
uh, has Parcel taken to the black cells and Parcel's there with one of the whores. Yep. Uh, Tyrion actually tosses her a coin saying for your trouble. So it's a little, uh, sort of flashback to that moment as well. Yeah. And, uh, the next scene we have Tywin riding in on his white shitting horse into the throne room. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny about that is it's a fun little metaphor it was back at the, at the time when i initially saw it but now looking back i can't help but wonder if that was a warning to book readers as to what was to come i was wondering if you had any of those horse metaphors handy yeah well, I mean, that's what i'm saying the metaphor is Hey, we're gonna shit all over your show. <laughs> but isn't this in the books? Ah, uh, yeah, it is. And actually, in the books, if I recall correctly, oh um, he actually waits. Oh my until god! It... <laughs> yeah, it's in the book. Um, but it actually happens when Tywin is in the throne room, right in front of the throne. <laughs> so, it's a slight difference there. It doesn't happen as he's waiting outside to go in. It actually happens inside the throne room. <laughs> That's amazing. It's perfect, though. <laughs> these these are the things I remember when I read the book. Where does the horse take the dump? <laughs> when was the shit? <laughs> uh, so, Joffrey gives Tywin the hand of the pin. And uh, I do have to say the throne room is looking very red. Very evil looking. <laughs> it did look really red, didn't it? It was Very like, Lannister. what is this, Christmas or Satan? I don't yes. know what it is. Somehow they got some floodlights and they backlit the windows behind the throne. It was a very interesting artistic choice. <laughs> I don't know. Were they trying to act like it's because of the fires that were going on outside? I, I honestly don't. I, it was weird. It was interesting. I mean, like, clearly it was meant to be ominous, but it was a little weird. I, it's really, well, it's, I don't mean to jump. Oh, I don't really mean to jump forward, but I think the lighting was really to emphasize Natalie Dorm- Dormer's cleavage. It's what you well, mean, that it's on fire, because I agree. Because <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> I, I get what you're saying. I like how appropriately dressed she was for being in the throne room. Oh, yeah. It was totally intentional. I think I was just trying to show, like, well, you know, Lannisters, red, red's their color. They, they've got this now. It's a, it was a little bit on the nose, but yeah, it is what it is. Um, so Peter Baelish is given Harrenhal uh, as a reward for bringing in the Tyrells. Loras Tyrell kneels before Joffrey. He asks that Marjorie be considered as his intended. Marjorie manages to sing Joffrey's praises. Joffrey digs her, but he's promised to Sansa. Cersei counsels him to not marry the daughter of a traitor um, for the good of the realm. Uh, sets Sansa Stark aside. And uh, that three times fast. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great mama's fast going on. Like everyone's playing their parts pretty well. And I don't, I can't quite recall. Can you guys remember in Clash? I think Sansa's in on it too, because I think Cersei actually has a discussion with Sansa about how they're going to get Joffrey to to set her aside. Does anyone remember if that's accurate? I feel like you're right. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember exactly. Anyway, it's all been pre-planned, so. You know, I think, I think they, they shot that pretty well. It's really nice to see yeah. the way they've chosen to do it here in the show, though, because it was really wonderful to watch Sansa's reactions as this orca, very much orchestrated scene is being played out before her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Uh, anyway, oh, Pycelle jumps yeah. in at one point because, you know, Joffrey's playing his part and he says, oh, he can't do it. He can't set Sansa aside. He made a holy vow. And uh, Pycelle says, no, no, it's okay. The High Septon said it was. <laughs> Joffrey agrees to marry Marjorie. Uh, Sansa moves away from the crowd. Uh, Peter Baelish catches up with her. He alludes that she isn't safe from Joffrey. Um, he compares her to Catelyn, promises to get her home. 
And that's the end. He actually, he actually people says, not safe from. yeah, he actually says Kat was like a sister to me. <laughs> Somewhere oh, yeah. you can just imagine Jamie's like, yes, yeah, she was. Sorry, <laughs> <too>. High five. <laughs> well, and you know, in canon, everyone thinks that he did have sex with her. Yeah, <laughs> that's because he he yeah. basically told them. That. Yeah, he, right. He did right. tell them that. Yeah. <laughs> told oh, anyone God. he would little listen. Such a fucking dick. He is. Oh, God. Little I... finger. Little finger gets Hall. I'm so glad they put that in the show. That's one of my favorite things. <laughs> I love how Hall is it's so fucking okay. cursed. I'm gonna say it's so apt. Like mm. it's so suited to him, and he's creepy, creepy. This. <laughs> um. Yeah. What I like about this scene is I love that Sansa just gets that one brief moment of happiness. Like mm. I'm free, and then of course Littlefinger comes along to just take a giant dump on that as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, so really the whole scene is a big extended dump metaphor is what you're saying? Metaphor, yeah. <laughs> yeah, appropriate. Okay, so uh we see the next scene and it's Ross. She's in her uh the brothel covering up a uh, black eye. A cloak customer enters and it turns out to be Varys. He's not interested in her boobs, asks about her current employment. Uh she wants to know what he wants and he says he sees a potential partner. He says Littlefinger is dangerous, but he has his weaknesses. Ah, poor Roz. You know, in retrospect, it's just so hard to watch what happens with Roz. I mean, clearly in season one, they just they didn't know what they were going to do with her. And then in season two, they realized that everyone hated her and they were trying to adjust. And oh, it's so tough. I mean, like here she is covering this black eye that she got because Cersei had her kidnapped. You know, she's taking... Which one is it? Shatire or Elia's place, but whatever. Mm-hmm. She's beat up, and now she's covering that up, and she's going to become a double agent. We all know how this goes down. It's just like, ugh, so That's, hard to watch. That is and, sad. But what well, that? So... Go ahead, yes. <laughs> I was going to say, it was just, it would have been, I kind of, I kind of get why they wanted Olivar in that position with Oberyn, but it would have been so much fun to have Raz with Oberyn and Elaria. You know, I agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still not sure why they killed her off. I mean, other than to please book readers, but they really don't seem to be interested in doing that anywhere else. So I don't really know why they got rid of her, but yeah, it sucks. She just, you know, you forget that she's supposed to be Wasn't... this girl from the north who just kind of gets thrown into this mess and like she's already catching on to the game, but she just can't keep in front of it. Wasn't there a rumor about an actress mm-hmm. not wanting to do any more nude scenes? Was she yeah, one of those names thrown around that? didn't want to do that anymore uh, you know we've never we've never had confirmation although it, it sounds a little bit more like it was amelia clark than anyone else and that's mm-hmm. kind of borne out as amelia hasn't done any nude scenes since that rumor went around so and, I, mean, I don't know there fair, was a rumor that was esme bianco but well if you're playing a whore i do think that you know you should have an expectation you might be nude <laughs> well, it seems like she did. I mean, like, I, I, we don't know that it was Esme, and I, I'm kind of, yeah, I, I'm, that I, seems I, unlikely I kind of to me. It was her? Yeah, I don't think it was her. I, yeah, I, I know it seems like a main character kind of thing to fixate on it. I don't see her. Yeah, I, I think it was Amelia. I really do think it was Amelia. Which, fair enough, I can yeah. understand. All well, right. she does actually, Amelia did the comment, well, one of the commentaries for this episode with Alan Taylor, who was the director of the episode, and she does actually mention, although. In a joking way, well, <laughs> presenting it in a joking way, 
uh, it sort of indicated that she was a little bit tired of being asked to get nudes. So they had a little joke about it, but it's there in the commentary. Yeah. So all evidence yeah. points to Amelia. Okay. <laughs> Could be more than one actress, you never know. <laughs> so I have to say, it's interesting that they're setting up Varys as understanding Littlefinger's fixation on Sansa. That's kind of what I get from this. Is this is that what you guys got yeah. from this? Because of the weakness yeah. comment. Yeah, I'm interested to see if they ever do anything with that or where it goes. I mean, I know that Roz is there watching Littlefinger talk to Sansa in season three, isn't it? With mm-hmm. Shay? Yes. So I don't know if this will bear out fruit, like, say, in season five. Maybe we'll see something. That That's Maybe. interesting. I would like that. I hope they do something with that. But who knows? Who yeah, knows? yeah. Okay. Um, now, that, oh, now that we're giving them so much credit with Varys uh, stuff, laying down a lot of stuff early on, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, it's a Jamie and Brienne scene. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Brienne and Jamie. Um, okay, so, uh, Brienne parks the boat, and <laughs> <laughs> Jamie correctly pegs her for a virgin, um, because that's the natural start of any conversation. <laughs> It is with Jamie and Brienne. Yep. <laughs> he shoved. Uh, Jamie continues to go at her. Um, he speculates that one or two boys must have tried with her. Uh, none were strong enough, but of course he's strong enough. Uh, we could probably like quote this scene verbatim, I think. <laughs> she says, uh, not interested. Um, they turn to see three tavern girls hanging from a tree. A sign is around the middle one's neck that says they lay with lions. Um, Brienne ties Jamie to a tree. She intends to bury them. Jamie protests. Three northern soldiers come down the path. When they realize she's a woman, they burst out laughing. Um, Brienne begins to untie Jamie and says, we'll be going. They tell her to wait. Who do you fight for? She replies, the Starks. They want to know what Jamie has done. Uh, stealing is the answer. The three men seem suspicious. They question Brienne some more. One man seems to recognize Jamie. Um, another asks Brienne what she thinks of these beauties pointing to the swinging women in the tree. And Brienne replies, I hope you gave them quick deaths. He says, two of them, yeah. Brienne does not look pleased, continues to push Jamie onward. The one man yells, wait. He recognizes Jamie as the Kingslayer. Brienne shoves Jamie away and kills two of the men. The third injured man, she stabs through the guts, and uh, he gets a slow death. So... I know that uh, Brienne has been kind of criticized, I guess the show version of Brienne, for killing, so, I guess, <laughs> effortless, effortlessly. Yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> the main issue I have with this scene is is that, I'll preface it by saying I understand that Gwendolyn Christie is a fair bit older than the Brienne of the books, so I can understand the showrunners wanting to make her seem more experienced in terms of battle and whatnot to match her show uh to match her show age. However, yeah, look what this scene to me is doing or has done is kind of stripped away the kind of more nuanced aspects of Brian's personality in the books. Um you know, all that great kind of stuff we have about Brian being tender hearted and her background was so good when telling her she's got a soft heart and making her butcher the the lambs and the piglets and how that made her cry and she had to burn her, her bloodstained clothes. And then later on in Feast, when Brienne finally makes her first kill, it's not a pleasant experience for her. You know, it really affects her emotionally. And 
then we get that call back uh, to her earlier recollection where she thinks to herself, you know, I, I did not flinch. Did you see Sir Goodwin? And she's just so shaken. And it's such a, a poignant moment and a, and a great character moment for Brienne. So to then go and see this scene in the show where she not only kills these guys seemingly without hesitation, but she seems to kind of enjoy prolonging the last guy's death. It was just kind of a bit of a slap in the face, you know, for those of us who know Brienne to be that soft-hearted, you know, young girl. You know, she's, despite her strength in her skill with a blade, she's not a natural killer in the books, and they've stripped that sort of nuanced book characterization away, and they've made her into this more... I guess stereotypical warrior who's fearless and who lives for killing the bad guys, <laughs> you know. So yeah, I, I mean, mean I- yeah, it, that's exactly it. They have made her a little bit of a stereotypical warrior. I completely agree with you. And you know, I guess I'm the only one who who watched this as a book reader first. But I mean, I I hated this scene when I first watched it. In fact, it took me well past all of the airing of season three to finally kind of come to terms with this scene, um, just because it is so much a violation of, you know, what you're talking about, Whitey, who I, who I feel Brienne is. But, you know, I will say honestly, when I stepped back and looked at Brienne the way that you read her from Jamie's POV in Storm of Swords, this really isn't terribly far off from what Jamie sees. Um, and I kind of, I am, I'm not going to outright accuse them of it. I don't know that the, the showrunners gave special attention to Brienne's chapters. I don't know how invested they are in her eventual real characterization. And also, as you pointed out, Gwendolyn Christie is definitely way older than book Brienne. And so when you take all that into account, I actually can kind of see why they went this direction. I think it was, they probably weren't thinking about the fact that she doesn't have a kill under her belt. They probably didn't even remember it, to be frank, I, I, I think. But, you know, I really, I really don't think it's too far off from the spirit of what Jamie sees when he looks at Brienne in Storm of Swords. And if you kind of look at her from that lens on the show, you can kind of see exactly where they're coming from because Jamie very much does see her as a formidable individual and, and, and harsh and tough. And she is in her speech. You know, it's not until you get in her head that you really know that she's just this pile of goo inside, mm. <laughs> you know, from the outside, this is so much Brienne. Well, and, and I, I get it. I, I get why they did it. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the scene is meant to be a replacement of, you know, her dropping the bolt right. on the bolt, yeah, which, which isn't realistically going to, you know, that's just not realistically going to be filmed. So I think, you know, I, I think I agree with you, Chicky, on to a certain extent. And then I just, I do think that it's a replacement scene for that. And, and there's some things I really like about the scene. Like, I really like the juxtaposition of you would love to know what it feels like to be a woman immediately followed yeah. by seeing three women hanging mm-hmm. for sleeping with the enemy. I mean, that's such a, you know, that's a really powerful thing that they just did there. That's the cost of war to a woman right there, you know, and just, I think that part is great. Yeah, look, yeah it, is, it is interesting that that is what they chose to keep is those hang women. Yeah. The one thing from that chapter that they held on to is that. And yeah, I, I agree with you. I think they were trying to make a statement with Brandon. I really have no problem with it at all in retrospect. And I actually feel if you, if you look at it from, from a book lens of an older Brienne, I feel like it is in line with, with, with a book Brienne characterization. But I mean, yeah, the first time I watched it, I hated it. I can't even tell you guys. I don't even know if I actually watched it. I might have gotten up and walked out of the room. I don't, I don't remember. Yeah. Well, yeah but I think this so- scene is one that will, I mean, I think we can look back at this scene potentially after season five and, 
you might have, you know, if season five comes and goes and you don't have any of that introspection of Brienne and none of that exploration of her character, I think you hate the scene more. I think if that happens in <laughs> season five, you forgive this scene a bit. Um, you know, cause yeah. you, I think the important thing is at some point you get inside of her head a little bit more than we have. You know, it'd I, been- hope so. I hope so. Look, I, I still don't like this scene very much. Look, I still don't like the killing part of it. I've got to say the scene does encapsulate a few things from the books really, really well. Um, it, firstly, it does really show well Jamie's conflation of Brienne and all things sexual. Um, you know, the whole you're a virgin, I take it conversation. You know, we've talked about this so many times before. Uh, from the outset of Jamie and Brienne in the books, he's fixated on her body. You know, he compares Brienne to Cersei. He thinks of them in the same context, you know, being naked, of wanting to get her in the bath and scrub her back. He's constantly checking Brienne out, commenting or thinking about her strong arms and legs, her height, her pretty, pretty eyes. So that's something this scene does well. Um, it also shows Jamie's ability to read people and to know what to do or say to provoke them. You know, immediately goes for the jugular, starts commenting about her childhood, how her height must have scared off all the boys, made them laugh at her, call her names. He even manages to reference the bet without knowing it, where he talks about some boys like a challenge, one or two of them must have tried to get inside Big Brienne. Uh, so that that's another thing that he does. And one thing that I really, really enjoyed about this scene is that when they're confronted by the three Stark men, uh, and the, the leader, I guess, asked them, well, kind of forces them to come up with a, a plausible story as to what they're doing. Uh, Brienne catches on very quickly to what mm-hmm. Jamie's, Jamie's doing. Like, what does he say? Um, apparently eating is the crime. Stealing a pig. Yeah. And Brienne quickly picks up on that cue and she's like, no, stealing is a crime. And that's another thing you see in the books. They sort of work in sync together very well. So it's it's really great to see that translate to the show. But, yeah, look, as for the Brienne killing thing, I just think it was about as subtle as being hit in the head with a sledgehammer. And I haven't seen a lot of a lot of the sort of nuances of Brienne's character yeah. come through in the show. So until that happens, I will withhold judgment. Yeah. But as it stands, I, I think that's love fair. That scene. Yeah, you know, I think yeah. it's fair to say that. You know, it would have been nice instead of that sneer that she gives as she's killing that guy is if she just like, if there was like a flicker of remorse, mm-hmm. like that would have helped mm-hmm. that scene immensely and give the viewer yeah. a better indication of what, what's going on inside the sneer. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's all very well and good to say, well, this may be how Jamie sees her, but the viewers also need to see her. And we're not going to be saying, well, look, maybe inside of Jamie's head, this is how he sees her. So yeah, I mean, look, I'm, you can obviously tell I'm not a huge fan and I, I will continue to not be a huge fan until perhaps they start uh, showing a little bit more of Brienne's soft design. So, on a lighter note... Oh, go ahead, Chicky. Go ahead, go ahead, go. I was just going to say, you have to admit, though, the one thing that they totally nail with this scene is everything about the Jamie and Brienne dynamic is perfectly illustrated here. I mean, they yeah. were trying to get it going in episode eight and you really see it just... Firing, firing on all pistons <laughs> in this scene. I mean, they are completely. The banter is there. The looks, Absolutely. the chemistry, chemistry, and that fire. is one thing. <laughs> yeah, that is one thing that this scene. I think it's the saving yeah. grace of the scene. Quite oh. frankly, it's the thing that holds it all together. Is Look. there is something so incredibly Jamie and Brienne about this moment? 
that you just kind of can't completely, you know, yeah. as irritating as it is. Believe me, I hated it at first. I, yeah, no, I that's exactly what I'm it. saying. I think that that's what it did when I just went through those points. It really does encapsulate the spirit of the Jamie and Brent relationship. And as you say, the chemistry between Nikolai and Gwen is outstanding. She really shines when she's playing opposite him. And as you mentioned, the banter is, it's fun, it's hostile, it's sexy, it's all the good stuff it should be. So, oh, and you know what's interesting is in the commentary, uh, everyone loves these two. It was funny because as soon as they pop up on the screen, both Amelia and Alan Taylor just let out these little, ah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody loves Jamie and Brienne. I believe Guile was going to take us to a lighter note. <laughs> I was just going to say that those three guys who immediately burst out laughing at her, I mean, She's like twice as big as any of them. And yeah, she's a woman, but look at her. Why are you laughing your asses off? She totally can kick your ass. Yeah, and you know what's funny about that is, is see how closely Jamie's watching her as well. Like, it's something that we've talked about several times, and it's something that's really evident to me in the books is just how perceptive Jamie is. He may not always come off as overtly cluey, but he really watches what's going on around him, and he really understands what's going on around him, and he will file that away and mm-hmm. use it to his advantage if need be. Yeah, and the good thing about that moment is it is kind of a clue into Brienne's internal struggle. It does give mm-hmm. her a moment of humanity before we get into, yeah. you know, badass Brienne. I mean, you do see that moment, it does bother her that people are laughing at her, and, and it gives you an idea that it probably is bothering her that Jamie keeps making these yeah. comments. And, mm-hmm. you know, God bless them, they're trying, I guess. You know, you put a bunch of dudes in a room and let them write a story, a character, I guess, as complex as Brienne, and I mean, you know, they're doing their best, I guess. They're doing their best. That's so sweet of you. <laughs> That's the tag on this podcast. I think they love Brienne. I think, I think they love Brienne. I think they love their interpretation of Brienne. And so I kind of give them the benefit of the doubt with her. I think, I think they're a little off in how they interpret her, not as badly as with Jamie, but I think they do love her. So I, I try to at least give them the benefit of the doubt with it. Give them a slight <laughs> pass. And uh, anyway, we end the scene with Brienne uh, telling Jamie to stay while she cuts the women down to bury them. And that's it. I love that we got to spend so much time on that. <laughs> okay, so uh, Catelyn and Rob are the next scene. Rob uh, loves his new lady. He intends to marry her. Uh, Catelyn warns him about betraying Walder. And everybody now is screaming internally, listen to your mother. Rob's not oh. hearing it from Catelyn. Um, he says Ned is dead and uh, she has no right to uh, call him reckless. It's a very short scene. Yeah, look, my issue with, with the Robin and Talisa thing remains the same, and that is, at least in the books, when he marries Jane, it's more for the purposes of honour, or at least, you know, trying to retain her honour. Here they've turned it into this big, we're in love, it's all about passion, and it just makes Rob seem even stupider. <laughs> and in this particular <laughs> scene, he's... It really comes across, he really comes across as like a petulant teenager. It's sort of mm-hmm. like, tell me what I can't do, mother. I dare you. And Kat's right in what she says. He's, he's just being stupid and reckless. And the fact that he would throw 
her own, I guess, misdeed of, of setting Jamie free back at her as if to prove some kind of weird point. I mean, two acts of stupidity don't make a right, Rob. <laughs> right, but I mean, it does show them as a well-matched um, mother-son. God knows <laughs> where he got his righteousness from. You know, he certainly didn't get it from Ned, let's say. Yeah, a lot oh, of telly God. in that one. I mean, so you probably got some stupidity from Ned, but not the reckless. <laughs> His recklessness from Kat. What a a combo. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Rob Stark. (laughs) Well, at least he's handsome. He's got that going. True. (laughs) So, uh, Stannis is pretty pissed. Uh, He wants to know where his victory is. Melisandre tells him she still sees it. Stannis has lost his faith in her fire god. He grabs her by the neck and chokes her. He lets her go, and uh, he has this line where he says, I murdered my brother. A little bit of regret, it sounds like. Um, Melisandre tells him, the war has only begun, and it will last for years. You will betray men serving you, your family, everything he holds dear. But it will be worth it. He's the warrior of light. Melisandre leads Stannis to a fire, tells him to look, and uh, he sees something. I don't know what, but he sees oh, something. Oh, God. <laughs> it's... It's tough to watch this because, you know, Stannis just doesn't ever really let himself think about or acknowledge that he had some part in Renly's death. He really does genuinely convince himself that Renly was stabbed by some human being in his camp. Um, and and it, it's tough to watch them. I'm not really sure what they're going for or why they wanted to have Renly or Stannis acknowledge this. I'm not really sure if they were trying to humanize him. It's I don't know. The Stannis characterization is really tough on the show. I don't think they enjoy Stannis at all as a character. Yeah, and, no, and no, no. I, I have a hard time watching stuff like this. I mean, it's, it's good. They put him in here. He's here. They've got Mel with him and Davos and, you know, and they just continue to expand his story. So, I mean, they're, they're trying in their way to do him justice, but it's just, it's, it's cringy as a, as a Stannis fan to watch stuff like this. I have a hard time. I had a really hard time rewatching this. I just was kind of like holding a pillow over my face and screaming <laughs> into it. To me, it was interesting that they did have him admit outright that he was complicit in Renly's death because, yeah, in the books, he doesn't, he doesn't overtly acknowledge that he played a part or he gave the command or whatnot. Um, what's the quote? He, he talks about, he basically references the fact that he's, he was sleeping when it happened. Uh, he talks about the fact that it was a dream and he was in his tent mm-hmm. when Renly died and when he woke, his hands were clean. So as you say, it's kind of like he, I mean, yes, we know that he's he had was to involved, but he's, he's right, yeah. right. It's, it's still there. Like he knows, he knows he just won't admit it to himself. I think. Yeah. And I think that's an important part of Stannis's character because of his intense commitment to his view of justice. And I think when you lose that, you lose some of the elements of Stannis, but, you know, what are you going to do? Well, right, you know, that's, in, that's it, isn't it? Because, um, yeah. you know, what what do they call it? Kinslaying is actually the, you know, worst possible crime you can possibly commit. Mm-hmm. And for someone who bases his life around justice and being just, and mm-hmm. it must be, it must have really just <laughs> torn him apart to have actually well, been involved in that. But, I mean... From Stannis's perspective, Renly is a traitor. That's true. He's a traitor against the crown. So which comes, you know, what is justice? Is justice killing a traitor or is justice not killing your brother? You know, 
That's it's it. very, he's very much in a Jamie situation. Yeah, that's dilemma, the conflict with Stannis. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, it must be really. The thing about Stannis is he, he he sets his brain up so that he can have it both ways. Yeah. He actually, you know, just doesn't let himself acknowledge. He knows, I think, on some level what happened, but he won't. He literally won't allow himself to acknowledge it, even though he uh, clearly feels guilt. And he he thinks about Renly from time to time and references that the page. Um, yeah, the it's a sorcery oh, element of it too. Really, yeah. like I can't see Stannis being all for you know using yeah. sorcery as a way of killing yeah. his enemies. One of, one, of no honor in that. one of the most interesting things about um, Stannis for me and the Mel and Stannis dynamic is that these are two people who completely believe that they're doing the right thing as a, as a, a general thing. I mean, not necessarily in terms of Renly, but just what they're doing generally, trying to get status on the throne. You know, Mel thinks he's the, <laughs> he's the one true king. Status thinks he's the one true king. So for them, that bad stuff, you know, the infidelity, the, the fratricide, creating shadow baby assassins, it's all being done for the greater good. Um, for what yeah, well, she doesn't right. just think so, he's the king. Yeah, she thinks he's the savior of the she world. Does. I mean, yeah, she does. actually thinks he is a literal savior. She does. Yes. So, you know, as we discussed a little bit last week, this is something that George does incredibly well with his characters. He creates characters who are kind of morally ambiguous. You know, they possess both good and bad elements. They do both virtuous and cruel things. So it's, it's, status is one of those, really interesting characters to delve into, you know. He's think about his life, you know, as a child he he nursed an injured hawk back to health, you know. He's, he's, he's someone who, as Palmer mentioned last week, God. he won't tolerate <laughs> rape amongst his men. He loves his daughter. He'll go in trouble to the wall with only a few men to defend the realm because it's his duty. But then on the flip side we've got the same Stannis who's gonna cheat on his wife, he'll kill his brother He's almost unyieldingly merciless. On paper, Um, that doesn't sound good, does it? (laughs) No, but that's what I'm saying. Like, this is what George does. He creates these characters who are neither all good or all bad. They've got those shades of grey. And it's, it's so important to have characters like these in fiction because they reflect how the real world works. The majority of people aren't solely good or solely evil. They're a combination of both. And, and many other things in between. And and that's why we relate so deeply to a lot of these characters and why they feel so authentic to us. I mean, think about who do we have? We've got Stannis, we've got Jamie, uh, Tyrion, Arya, Theon. Theon. <laughs> These are the characters where the shades of grey are most evident. So, yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying, Chicky, about kind of watching the Stannis and because to me their adaptation is a little off the Stannis too. For me it feels like they really seem to be highlighting the bad that he does much more than the good. Um and it was never more evident to me than when we got to the last episode of season four. What was it the last episode? No, not the last episode. Which episode was it when Stannis makes it to the wall? Anyway. Yeah, end of um, season four. 
Yeah, right. Yeah, so rather than getting Stannis just go with the few men he had to kind of save everyone, we've got Stannis going to Bravos and getting bankrolled and then rocking up with this huge (laughs) army to to crush these wildlings who really have just been kind of humanised for us. We just had this scene with Mance and John, and Mance was, you know, he's a pretty cool guy. (laughs) So rather than Stannis being the hero, he kind of rocks up with his huge army and crushes the the wildlings. (laughs) You're jumping ahead a couple seasons on us, Whitey. (laughs) Sorry, I'm all over the place. But yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, what book... That is what happens in the book. I mean, that's literally what happens in the book. Wait, oh, except he doesn't have a huge army backing him. Yeah, it's completely different. He has enough of an army to wipe out the, the wildlings, though, and it is after we've seen them be humanized. So, I mean, I get what you're saying, but I do think they also get to the core of... You know, the one thing about Stannis is that he actually, you know, if you compare him to, compare him to, you know, Daenerys or Joffrey, for example, Stannis actually does listen to his advisors. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't think Joffrey or Danny necessarily do. They're much, you know, they're much more independent, not independent, that's not the right word, but, um, they're much less likely to listen to things other than their own voice, whereas at least Stannis, I mean, you do get that from him. He does take counsel. He does, um, you know, there's definitely points where you can see where he could potentially be a good king. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, no, I, I mean, you know, I, my thing is, my thing with the show and Stannis just kind of comes down to this, is Stannis is getting the exact opposite show treatment of Tywin Lannister. Tywin Lannister gets hero framing mm-hmm. everywhere he goes, and Stannis gets pretty much the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my issue with, with the way that they treated Stannis at the Wall, is... It's the fact that you've just completely humanized the wildlings, and it's not coming from the perspective of the fact that Castle Black is about to fall. You're doing it in the wildling camp on yes. the show, and Stannis comes in as a, as a conqueror, just kind of, his guys are just killing people. And in the books, what you're feeling, because you're coming from John's POV, is you're feeling, this is a desperate situation, and it's going to be terrible if somebody doesn't beat these wildlings. Mm-hmm. And Stannis comes in and stay, saves the day, and it's exactly the opposite. <laughs> yeah, right. In the show, in the show. John sitting down with a nice cup of tea with Matt, <laughs> and they're getting along. See, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right, I you guys. I, we have I spent way too much time on this Stannis <laughs> scene. I got to move us on. <laughs> All right. It's well, so we'll, funny that Comey's not even on this podcast. <laughs> I know. We've talked about Stannis. We've done season four. We're on season two. Let's stick there. Okay. Okay, we're going to the we next scene. <laughs> yeah, it's your hey, it's your boy Theon. <laughs> he's in, he's he's being annoyed by a horn blowing outside of Winterfell. Uh, he promises that he will kill the cunt who's blowing it. Uh, Lewin tries to advise he's him. Foreshadowing. Yeah. <laughs> Theon is being a Danny. Uh, he isn't listening to Lewin's advice. <laughs> he is surrounded, and there are no ravens to send word to Balon. Theon is on the verge of tears when he speaks of what it's like listening to people talk about how lucky he is to when he was a prisoner, um, you know, being a ward at Winterfell. The horn starts up again. He promises more death for whoever is blowing it. Lewin tells him to run. Theon refuses to be a coward. Lewin tells him, take the black. Oh, imagine if he did. Lewin mm. tells Theon he is not the man he is pretending to be. In the late morning, Theon rallies his ironborn. It's a great effort, but ultimately he's clubbed in the back, clubbed in the back of the head um, by his first anchor, who then uh, runs a spear through Lewin. If only Theon had taken the black. <laughs> it's a, it's a really bittersweet moment actually, because 
if you think about what might have happened if Theon had taken the black, he might have actually finally found the things that he's been so desperately searching for. You know, but so didn't he want to? In the, he, in the books, he totally did. He was actually really on the precipice of of admitting defeat and taking the black in the book, and it was only because Ramsay and his men arrived as reinforcements that he was kind of persuaded, well, not even persuaded not to. He, you know, we, a battle started basically with Ramsay and his men and he rushed down to, to get involved. So he really was yeah. going to take the black, but yeah, I mean, oh, if only he had, I mean, the whole thing about Theon is what he wants is to feel like he belongs someplace. He wants a family and he might have gotten that if, eventually if he joined the Night's Watch and he might have even been able to get some redemption and some respect. I mean, we know that Theon can fight and we know he's a skilled archer. He could have really made his mark with the Night's Watch. So, so I killed Egret. Sorry? <laughs> he could have been the one to kill Egret. Get out! This is a really fitting end to, to Theon's season two arc. With what they did with him on the show, this is this is a really great way to carry it through. And I think it really kind of uh does a great job of illustrating like the bottom line um morals and and, and uh wants and needs of the Ironborn. I think, you know, the men who are with him, this really fits with what they probably <laughs> would would do in this situation. It's really good that way. Um yeah. you know. Hats off to them. This this was Theon in season two. Man, this was one hell of an arc. I mean, mm-hmm. you, you can't take that away from them. And it's it, and you know who you can't take it away from is fucking Alfie Allen. Oh, oh my god, it's too bad he'll so never good. get the respect he deserves for this because uh. he won't he won't ever get acknowledgement in the form of uh, awards. But at least he has the respect of us. <laughs> <laughs> that counts. And that's worth more than an Emmy. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> so the next scene, we have Tyrion. Uh, he is visited by Varys. Um, Cersei had arranged for more to kill Tyrion, is what he's told. Um, Tyrion orders Pod to get Bronn. He wants four gold cloaks outside his door. Varys informs Tyrion that Bronn is no longer in command and his hill folk have returned home. Varys asks Pod to open the door. Shay pops in. Varys acknowledges Tyrion for saving the city. Um, Varys leaves. Shay unwraps Tyrion's bandage, bandages and calls, he calls himself a dwarf and a monster. Shay refuses to let him wallow in self-pity. She wants to go to Pentos and never come back. Tyrion wants to, but he can't. He just likes the game, y'all. That was a y'all for Eon. <laughs> uh, Tyrion sobs. Shay holds him. Show Aww. Shay's so nice, guys. They're really playing up the love between <laughs> these two, aren't they? Yeah. Show Shay. I like in the mean, commentary how they. Yeah. Go ahead, go, go ahead, go. I liked in the commentary how they did point out, and you know, there's more of this in the episode too, that there's that ongoing theme of people being offered what they think they want in this episode and, and deciding not to do it. And basically it ruins their life. More or less. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, what if we've got, uh, Sansa who, who Littlefinger offered to help her escape and she doesn't, uh, you have Arya later. Arya, you have, yeah. yeah. You have got John even, um, yeah. Jacken who actually does go off and change. Um, <laughs> look to me, the theme, the theme of this episode was more, kind of the promise of a new life. So it's really played out in pretty much all the scenes, except Stannis. <laughs> Let's go back and talk about Stannis. No, no, no. 
<laughs> we have okay. We have a brief Anis. Oh God, we have a we have a brief interlude of Robin to Lisa. They get married and they promise themselves Yay. to each other to the end of their days, which will be for a very very so long time, they, I'm sure. <laughs> why are they getting married by the seven? Like in a religion that neither of them practice. Yeah, I'm oh, right. That is a damn good question. I met people talking about how. Oh, there weren't any uh, weirwoods around uh, in the south, blah, blah, blah. But I think there are. I mean, there are Godswoods around. And, yeah, yeah, she's from Essos. Come on. To me, it's weird. I agree. I'm just saying what other people have said. Well, Didn't Catelyn She's from Essos. So she'd follow Reller anyway. She wouldn't follow the seven. <laughs> I think Rob is like doing it like a fake marriage. Oh, nope, we're not really married. Ha ha. They should have just gone to Vegas. I like how this scene was shot, like with the firelight and the music and the, and the recitation of the vows and harmony. I thought it was really beautiful. Shame it's going to end in a massacre. But yeah. what? No, I, I just thought it was. Get married only inside the Okay, uh, let's go see Danny. All right, her, her dragons, <laughs> Danny, Jorah, oh. and Kavaro make their way to the tower. Um, where her dragons were taken. She circles around the tower, Jorah, who is, uh, looking down, uh, or I, I was, <laughs> I can't read my notes. I was gonna say he looks damn fine in his armor, just That's have to her. say. <laughs> well, he attempts, wrong. yeah, he attempts to follow her, um, he comes around and she's disappeared and it's just Kavaro. Uh, Jorah screams for her, um, then we get, uh, a shouty we Danny. Yep. Felicity! <laughs> Uh, uh, <laughs> thank you guys for that dramatic reenactment. <laughs> then we get a shouty Daenerys with torch in hand. Uh, we can hear her baby dragons crying. Um, Danny climbs stairs and towards the cries of her dragons. It's short, and we'll revisit that soon. So let's just go on to the next. And on a cliff, we have Jack and Hagar. He's watching over Arya, Hot Pie, and Gendry. Um, he manages to find Arya alone. She wants to know how he killed the guards. He invites her to Bravos. She could offer all her names to the Red God. Arya can't go. She needs to find her family. Jackin gives her a coin. If she's in Bravos and wants to find him, all she needs to say is Valor Margolis. Jackin turns, and when he looks back at her, he has become become someone far less handsome. Oh, bye, hot exactly. Jack. Bye, hot Jackin. But he's back for season five, right? Yep. Yay! That's amazing. What were you going to say, Eon? Oh, I just have this huge frowny face in my notes. <laughs> I have a frowny face so, too. Like a man, <laughs> man to a less than handsome, I was handsome man. It's pretty sad. Well, How are they going to work this into the next this season? I want to know. Is it going to be like? The hot gambit, Jack and Hagar, back in season five. Do people know? <laughs> yes, we don't know. It sounds like it sounds like the kindly man is actually Jacquin, but we don't actually know for sure um, how that's going to go down. No, he's coming back. As, Could just be his face. Yeah. No, he's coming back as Sirio Pharrell. <laughs> Although the, you know, it's funny in this scene. It seemed to me, even after he's changed faces, that he kept the same voice. Yeah, I, was, um, I don't know. Did anyone else feel that way? It's funny. I actually rewound to hear it, and it did sound very, very similar. So I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I mean, they could drop that, I guess. If not, but yeah, we'll see. He no has a voice. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Yeah, 
He's okay. not just a piece of meat, Lot. He's oh, not just a piece of meat. Stop. <laughs> Stop objectifying Jack and Hagar. <laughs> just a pretty face. Oh, God. T-bone steak. <laughs> T-bone steak. All right, moving on. Uh, Asha, Bran, and Hodor, and Rickon emerge from the crypts of Winterfell. Everyone has been killed. Things are burnt. Uh, Summer and Shaggy Dog are crying. Lewin is laying by the weirwood. Oh, this scene is so... Oh, pulled on my heartstrings. Uh, Lewin tells them to go north. Osha objects. Lewin wants them to find John. He asks Osha to watch over them. And then he also wants her to end his suffering. And then yeah, the last that. little bit is the scene of Winterfell as it burns in the distance on the hill. Very sad. I was I was thinking that, you know, when I was watching the credits, supposedly in season five Winterfell isn't burning anymore, but in the credits of this of this episode or the last time we don't see Winterfell burning and it's mm. yeah, it's gonna be something else to finally get back to a rebuilding Winterfell. Mm. Uh, so sad. Lewin's death. Oh god. Oh, what, what's the name of that actor again? Somebody Donald knew it was a comma, Donald probably. Donald comma yeah. knows. Oh, yeah. She probably wants He's to bone him. So <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, I've had wine. So is he old enough? Yes, he is. <laughs> is he legal? I'm pretty sure he's legal. He's <laughs> legal. <laughs> Alright, uh, so end of the book, too, and I think these are some of the best lines that George wrote, really, are the ending lines to Clash of Kings. Say them, Guile. I don't have them up. Oh, oh God. Guys. Basically, <laughs> I, we discussed this the other day. Um, Brad what? said... No, we didn't. Oh, no, we didn't. Sorry, we didn't. We <laughs> Guy's only allowed to read sex scenes on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That's the rule. Basically a sex scene. Oh, uh, I think he, Brad, talked about means. looking Go back and saying how it even though it's burning, the roots yeah. go deep. And it might be broken, but it's not... Hang on, no, it's not... Yeah, no, I don't have any fun of me. Yeah, just All right. not broken. And he says, like me, I'm not broken or something like that. Anyway, yeah, they are good lines. <laughs> okay, let's go on to... Uh, I can't word for it. They're good yeah. lines. <laughs> so we're going to go back to uh, where Danny is. Um, she gets to a door. When she opens it, her dragons stop crying briefly. She opens another door and steps out into the throne room at King's Landing. The roof is gone and it's snowing. Uh, she climbs the steps to the throne, and just as she's about to touch it, she hears her dragons again. A large door opens, and this time she's at the wall. In the distance, she sees a tent, and inside is Drogon with a gorgeous baby. Uh, Danny thinks mm-hmm. she's dead. Drogon tells her maybe it's a uh, Drogon tells her maybe it's a dream. Uh, Drogo, I said Drogo. <laughs> I don't talk now. <laughs> Really that would be weird. Why is Drogon holding that baby? <laughs> you didn't know that Game of Thrones was made by Disney, right? <laughs> oh god, I said Drogon twice. Anyway, Drogo tells her maybe it's a dream. Questions, uh, uh, questions. Oh god, they hold each other. Dragons are crying. Danny leaves uh, Drogo and the baby. Uh, she returns. She returns to the round room with doors. Uh, inside are her three dragons, and they're there in chains. So is the creepy warlock. <laughs> um, he plans to keep her chained with her dragons. Daenerys looks at her dragons and says, Jakaris, uh, little Drogon, lights the warlock up, <laughs> and the other two join in. The chains disintegrate. 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. I just no. had to my brain throughout that. Anyway. <laughs> this so, is just one of those where it's just like, why Why did they do the House of the Undying? I'm really not sure. Because none of these visions are from the books. You know, Danny has a what seems like a very prophetic walk through the House of the Undying in the mm-hmm. books, and, and pretty much everything feels meaningful. No, there are some things from the past, but a lot of it's about the future. Right. Yeah. And, and if it is from the past, it's like informative, pretty much. You know. So I don't. I don't know. It's a weird. Yeah. I mean, I get why me. they didn't want to show I mean, some of the images, but they could have like. Yeah. I think they could have solved a lot of like the annoyance with the scene by sticking a blue flower in the wall. Like, you know how many God, they how really happy could've. that would have made like at least <laughs> yes. some people with that one stupid thing. <laughs> like, given Renly the frickin' peach, put a blue flower in the wall, done. I have so many conflicting <laughs> thoughts about the House of the Undying in the show because I too can understand why the bulk of the books was in of those visions in a visual medium like television without giving too much away or without confusing the hell out of most of the viewers. The weird heart. Yeah. Right, look, I mean, yeah, it, that was like a bad acid trip. Yeah, well, that's very <laughs> hallucinogenic, the scene in the book. Like, yeah, it's, it's, it, you really, well, doesn't she, she eat takes the a drug, paste right? before? Yeah, she takes a drug, yeah. She, yeah. yeah. What is it? She eats the Jojen paste and then... Oh, yeah, whatever the, whatever the warlocks do to make their lips blue is what she has. Um, but yeah, I can see why they wouldn't want to show a lot of this stuff. You know, they don't want substantial foreshadowing of events like the Red Wedding. And that's the sort of thing you can obscure on a page, but it's much harder to hide on a screen. And then... See, I would say that they foreshadowed much more. I mean, this thing with the throne room is incredible foreshadowing to me. Um, it's pretty explicit and, and, and frank to me seeing this, this burned out throne room with snow falling down in it. So I don't know that it was to avoid foreshadowing. I mean, I feel like yeah, that's the heaviest foreshadowing. Kind of assume that's going to happen. Yeah, I, I mean, not. yeah, but, yes. but to me, the throne thing isn't really a, a foreshadow at all. It's kind of a given. Um, but there's also a lot of ambiguous, uh, visions or aspects to the scene. You know, like in the book, they've got the, the whole beautiful woman on the floor with the four little men crawling over her. They've got uh, a corpse standing at the prow of a ship. And it's unlikely show watchers would really have any sense of what these images might mean. No, I'm not arguing that they should show that. I'm just saying I don't think that I don't think that the argument that they didn't want to foreshadow mm-hmm. stuff is really what they were mm-hmm. Because if they didn't want to foreshadow anything, then they shouldn't have done what they did. I mean, especially having Danny at the wall. And having Danny um, in the throne room with snow falling while it was burnt out—I mean, those are those are very frank and heavy foreshadowings. I don't think it's that. Yeah, it's just, not, I, to me, it's just—it's just—I mean, number one, we got to say the Drogo scene. This is pretty self-indulgent. It feels like it's fan service. It's fan service. Yeah. Oh, so I loved it. I loved that scene. Dude, like he is what? so hot. There's nothing hotter yes, than like a really good-looking dude holding a baby. Like, oh, God. Oh, <laughs> yes. God. Well, the stuff, yes. and then I just wanted to briefly Maybe I told the great stallion to go fuck himself. Like, oh, I love that. <laughs> Isn't that great? It's great. <laughs> um, a lot of stuff that also happens in the book is we sort of have visions of the past and I feel like they could have shown some of that stuff. They should have, they could have shown like Rhaegar and they could have had the blue rose and the Tower of Joy references and whatnot. But to me, it feels like the show hasn't really provided the necessary background information for show only viewers to interpret what's going on like i don't have an issue with the blue rose that would be that would have been a nice little nod to book readers i think that would have gone really well um 
but yeah, I mean, to me, I agree with what Chicky initially said is I think, I feel like because of the lack of substance in this scene, they've really foregone the essence of what happens in the books. It felt yeah. like a relatively pointless inclusion for the show. And I found myself wondering exactly why they shot it at all. You know, beyond that's with me. Yeah. I just don't understand why. I mean, you know, the point of it is when you read this in the books, you go, wow, Danny is really going to matter because Danny sees all of these incredibly important things. And like the further you read, the more you understand just how much she's seen. I mean, she sees her father in the throne room probably talking to Jamie mm-hmm. because we know Jamie spouts some of the same dialogue that she sees yeah, you know, that, when she's in the house of the undying. There is over ashes and yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. 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 I forget what it is. Something about ashes meat, and meat. Something. Yeah, yeah, that would anyway, have been a fun scene. She sees see. Rhaegar, we're pretty sure. You know, I mean, like, she sees some and really it, intensely important things. And it, it, what it does is it, it gives you a really good feeling of, of Danny's importance. And I guess maybe that might have been what they were trying to do, but I didn't even feel that. I mean, it just fine. feels a little disjointed. And yeah, it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I get they're trying to keep Danny in the forefront. They're trying, you know, what Danny only has like three or four chapters in Clash, or not yeah. very many. Yeah, and they it, had to it, invent it, some story yeah. for her. The problem with Danny's storyline in the first couple of books, in Clash particularly, is that it's not particularly well suited to a visual medium because it mostly involves a sort of mental evolution for Danny rather than any sort of external struggle. So I feel like the writers would have served Danny's character better by showing her less rather than attempting to create yeah. conflicts for her that to me seemed mm. pretty contrived and pointless. It kind of just all fell flat to me. And you kind of wonder if, you know, if they knew how popular the show was going to be, if they would have had the confidence to kind of bench her to a certain extent in season two, like they benched other characters, mm-hmm. you know, because I mean, that's really what uh. you should have done with an adaptation, but you can kind of understand given that they're coming out of her first season, she's like one of the iconic characters that you wouldn't do that. But in mm-hmm. reality, they should have treated her like they treated Jamie that season and like they're treating Bran this upcoming season. Like she pretty mm-hmm. much should have been benched. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, American yeah, TV, they just they just don't do that though, and it's kind of did a disservice, I think. I agree to the content yeah. of the season. Well, but they are starting to do it now, and I do think it's a confidence thing. But I, I mean, I think it is like they're growing in confidence to be able to understand that, you know, we as an audience, we're smart enough that next year when we see Bran, we're going to remember who Bran is. You know? Oh, like, because I feel like Bran is... Well, he'll be like eight feet tall. He'll be bigger than Hodor. <laughs> <laughs> he will yeah, be no, Hodor. What are you talking about? <laughs> no, I can't really agree with you. <laughs> well, he has into Hodor, so yes, yeah. he will be yeah. Hodor. <laughs> I'm calling it. Yeah, no, calling it now. You. Completely agree with you. I feel <laughs> All right. Like it's funny because Game of Thrones trust their viewers with a, a lot of stuff, really. They do trust them to keep a lot of story threads together. So it's good to see them gaining the confidence, I guess, in their viewers to omit characters where they really do need to be omitted from the story. And, yeah, they, I, I do think that Danny would have <laughs> significantly benefited benefited from less less story time in season And I would have been I would have been happy. And I mean with listening the, the to benching. Amelia Clark's commentary, <laughs> I think she agrees completely. Yeah. <laughs> Alright, so let's go to the far north. Um we have John and Corin, uh they're prisoners. Um they're with Ygritte and a band of wildlings. Ygritte is smacking him around with his sword. John says she looks like a baby with a rattle. Corin takes the opportunity to grab his own blade from a distracted wildling. He goes after John, knocks him down, calling him a traitor. John and Corin fight and ultimately John runs Corin through with his sword. 
John's ropes are cut, Corin's body is um, ordered to be burned. Ygritte is completely on Team John at this point. She tells him it's time to meet the king beyond <laughs> the wall. She wants to be on Team John. That's yeah. sure. They make their way down a valley into, um, I guess, like a, I guess, a valley full of thousands of wildlings to meet Mance. This was an interesting scene um, because to me, the way it was scripted muddied John's motivation for killing Corrin just a little bit. I mean, in Clash, it's very clear, very, very clear that John doesn't want to kill Corrin, Mm -hmm. but he'll do it for the greater good, essentially. And in the book, John and Corrin spend a little bit more time together before they're captured by the wildlings and they... They form a funny sort of mentor-mentee relationship and Corrin essentially grooms John to kill him in, in a way. And when John does do that, it's, it's really the first big instance, at least for me, of John stepping up to do what he needs to, to do, I guess, regardless of his own feelings or trepidation. And it's, it's kind of a huge part of John's arc in the books, you know, growing up, putting his coddled childhood behind him and becoming a man, I guess. Uh, so interestingly enough in the show, it shot a little bit differently. We've sort of got Corrin singing insults at John. I mean, that happens in the book as well, but in the book it's very, very clear that it's, it's sort of a sh- all for show thing and, and John is really not wanting to do this. So yeah, the motivation appears a little bit more ambiguous for me in the show. And I think this was just tough to adapt. I can I see agree. why it was tough to adapt. It would have taken more time to really do it well. And I don't know, when was it we saw John last? Well, I guess he was, it was just with and they got captured. I mean, they've given a, they gave a lot of time to the John and Egret stuff at the end of the season. And, and, you know, they just, I guess you can see why. I, I don't know. It, it's another one of those. Uh, you can see what they're trying to do, and it just wasn't. It wasn't a great. Yeah. It wasn't a great a- adaptive adaptive uh, moment for them. I guess is, is yeah. the way to put it. Look, to um, me, it, actually, didn't, it didn't totally ruin the scene. Like I still, I don't know the scene, and and we do actually get a, that little moment between John and Corin. I think it's in two o eight where Corin tells John that the wildlings might trust him if he does what needs to be done. Like that's. That's the sum total of Corin kind of mentoring John into, into, hey, you may have to kill me, buddy. So it's certainly not as clear cut in the show, but yeah, it didn't ruin the scene for me. We still, it's sort of, it's still a coming of age moment for John, I think, but yeah, it just, it, his motivation, I guess, for killing Corin was just that little bit more ambiguous. And as you say, I, you totally agree. It's, it, it would be hard to adapt. I understand that. Were you trying to try to say the ambiguity? I was going to say, I kind of like the ambiguity in the show. I, I kind of like that interpretation a bit better because I like how it plays into season three. Like, if you hadn't read the books and you didn't know what John is going to do, I think it makes a lot of season three a little bit more interesting if you actually are thinking that he might not go back to the Night's Watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I point. think it just makes, I think it makes the first half of the season a little bit more enjoyable. Um, I don't, you know, it's not like a huge, a huge benefit or detraction, I think. Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, I think it's just one of those things that plays into that, you know, why a lot of people have trouble with the show interpretation of John is that they kind of do miss these big character moments for John. And for me, this is a miss, but you know, mm-hmm. uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see more of John hopefully in season five and hopefully we'll gain a little bit of that back. So, yeah. And I think actually kids acting after he kills Corn is not bad. 
Oh, really? See, I did not like that. He really looks like a wounded puppy. Like it just, it it looked too. That's like his. Yeah, right. He looks like that all the time. It was more of the same emo John to me, and it just seemed really, really overdone. Like (gasps) a little shocked, which I was, you know, like that's a new expression. Really? No, I looked the same to me. That's a new expression. I would sit here and defend Kit's acting in this scene, but I'd rather just talk about how pretty he looks. So you know what? I'd rather talk about. I'd rather talk about Zaro (laughs) and how he's he's sleeping next to Doria. Um, They're they're awakened by Danny and her men. Doria immediately pleads with Danny, um, and Danny ignores them and says, "Come." They open Zaro's vault. It's empty. Danny thanks Zaro for teaching her this lesson. She nods and he is pushed forward towards the vault. Zaro is bargaining. Doria is begging. Jora locks them inside. They sack Zaro's home enough to buy a ship. And uh, I don't know. It's a bit of a Tywin parallel just- going on with this scene, isn't there? <laughs> Maybe a little bit. Can we just call this a metaphor for Danny's storyline for season two? Yeah. We're just going to lock it in this vault and leave it there. Well, you Let know it die. You know what I thought the metaphor was? Hold on here a second. Hang on, hang on. You know what I thought the metaphor was? <laughs> the metaphor was Danny opening an empty vault. That is the metaphor for Danny's season two storyline. <laughs> Who are you going to say, Kyle? I'll go turn. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, I think she has boats and dragons, but she still locked them in a vault. Oh, Danny. How could you? Mm-hmm. She lied to them through song. Oh, I hate it when people do that. You know what was creepy um, about this scene, thing- too, is, like, it was this triumphant music that's playing over it all. Like, this is, like, a horrendous thing she just did to these two people. Yeah. I was quite dis- disturbed by that musical so, choice. Do you think when they were locked in the vault, they just basically banged until they died? Yeah, until they ran out of air? I, I think Zaro ate Dorito. <laughs> Oh my. oh my! Wait, wait, is that a like, euphemism? No, like, uh, <laughs> no. you know, take it what you will, take what you will from that. <laughs> you pervert! I totally killed this episode with that. Sorry. Oh god. <laughs> Sorry. Well, let's move on. We'll go to the north. <laughs> we see Gren, uh, Dolores, Ed, and Sam collecting shit for fire. Uh, Sam starts on about Gilly again. A horn blows. And again, and then another. That's three. They run. Sam is left behind. A storm quickly blows in, and we see figures through the storm making their way towards Sam, who's cowering behind a rock. Um, it's an army of undead with creepy blue eyes. Uh, one of the White Walkers looks at Sam, but leaves him be. You know, I really love the way they ended this season. I mean, this is spectacular to me um, that they they really, and this is one thing that the show has done so well. I mean, it works in the books, but the show has made the White Walkers the threat that they ought to be and that you ought to feel that they are. And this is amazing. I love that they did this with Sam. I really appreciate that. I like that they like Sam and that they want Sam in this position. And I really think that they captured um, that fear that you do feel in the mm. books when that third horn sounds. I mean, you know, the first one, okay, it's just some brothers returning. The second one, it's wildlings. But the third one goes and you just know, it's just like, you know, ah, and like, I really feel like they captured that perfectly. I love that they had these white walkers kind of herding these whites toward the wall. Everything about this is great. This is one thing 
I will never fault the show, show for. I think they're doing a great job with the whole White Walker threat. I completely yeah. agree. I think it was a nice little reminder at the end of the season that there is a greater threat out there than just, you know, the wars of men, I guess, and, and the threat of wildlings. That sense of foreboding, I totally agree. It worked really well for me. And it clearly worked for Sam too. I'm pretty sure crapped his pants. <laughs> okay. I have to say, I have to say that this is probably one of my favorite season endings for Game of Thrones on this yeah. season. Agreed. Yeah, because it's it's creepy. It's like it gives you goosebumps, and it's like I have to say, Gandalf he really aged really bad for this role. <laughs> Gandalf, <laughs> and now he kind of looks like a tree. <laughs> no, you know what, what happened? Why didn't we get these whites in in for season four? Why didn't we have oh, no. these instead of that army? We had skeletons. They're creepy and oh, weird. Skeletons. <laughs> They're creepy and hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> Why did the White Walker let Sam go? It's pretty That's a good question. Prejudice against fat people. That mm-hmm. it, well, I don't know, Kyle. Like, I don't get it. I didn't get that. That's one I, thing that's a little weird. It was funny. Yeah. I actually I thought that maybe he didn't see him, but no, apparently he did. They confirm it in the commentary. So, yeah. I actually, actually heard it was like a, a framing issue. It's actually oh. the, the White Walker isn't actually seeing Sam. But Sam sees him. Sam's actually at a farther distance. But the oh. way that they, it was a framing issue, but actually, it makes it look like the White Walker sees him. No, they actually confirm in the commentary that it wasn't. They actually stare right at each other. That's what Alan Taylor said. So apparently there's no good reason. So the director yeah, fucked up. Bad. And then <laughs> yeah. you assume that this is the White Walker that Sam kills later, so it's like a little bit of an irony. <laughs> Maybe. So. That'd be kind of cool. last day on the job. You know, the one thing I found distracting about the end of the scene, though, was, I don't know, I know their budget probably wasn't as great, but the cloning that happened with the, I guess, the, the oh, undead as the they're army. walking. Yeah. It's like, you can see the yeah. same one in the white pants with no shirt. Lot, <laughs> you could duplicate it. There was one with a hood. There was one with a hood that was repeated, too. But, you know, what are you, what are you gonna get? Look, guys, I could only find a few zombies to film, okay? They had to repeat some. Uh, I'll just blow some more some snow over the them or something. Or something. I just do that thing with people, you know? Like, yeah, you don't have the CG money. Just put some more people in there. They're cheaper. Anyway, so yeah, that's the end of season two. We did it. Yay! Oh. <laughs> a sigh of relief. Did it. It's like anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah. Just like, oh. Okay, so I usually cut us off at this point because we're way over, but I'm gonna be nice. <laughs> you guys want to talk about some season five stuff? Yeah. Oh well, there's not much to talk about. It's pretty quick. So okay. The big thing this week, and and I think some of us know about this, is that Nikolai Kosterwaldau in in this HBO Nordic promo decided to do this weird thing where he like grabs a duck and like wants to introduce the duck to everyone. This is a big thing. A spoiler for book readers for season five. Yeah, I don't think that's a big thing. I think that's just messing <laughs> around. I don't think there's a big thing to that. Hands of Nick, no, he's probably just fucking around. And yeah, I think he's being a troll. Do yeah. people actually take that seriously? Maybe it means yeah, Sorrows yeah. on Duck Sauce is coming back <laughs> for season well, five. Well, people are going crazy, and they think it's Raleigh Duckfield that he's talking. Yeah, right. <laughs> people are idiots. I'm so- sorry to everyone <laughs> listening, but you're idiots. Those are our idiots. Get so much hate mail. <laughs> well, maybe. 
Well, maybe it's hinting towards Jamie and Brian's love child. Maybe they're going to name it Drake or Mallard or Duck. Mallard. <laughs> Mallard. <laughs> or Daisy. Could be a girl. We can only hope. Okay. We can only hope. Everyone needs to get out right now. <laughs> So anyway, basically, basically Nick by trolled, trolled hardcore this week. Okay. Yes. Well, so big the news. other thing is that George has hinted that he may release more wins chapters, which is news because he had said that he was done doing that. Um, yes, yeah, it's hinted. It's yeah, an outright yes on this live journal. Because <laughs> I don't have the World of Ice and Fire app. Now, he said that there might be a chance of seeing more excerpts is that does that mean chapters that means a chapter yeah, okay. It's all yeah. okay yeah he's, i think there are four on there right now mm-hmm. um Maybe he'll yeah them in sequential order and in a bound volume <laughs> well what, what, I, <laughs> what i wonder is is um you know how he released the aria chapter mercy about two weeks prior to the beginning of season four i mean presumably that was at least partially because some of the material from that chapter was subsequently used uh, when Arya kills Polliver in the first episode of season four. So, yeah, I mean, I'm wondering if George That's is... the thought. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, exactly. I'm assuming yeah. it's going to be taken from, from season five or something that will be spoiled by season yeah. five. Yeah. So they're, they're, the thought is that there's probably something he wants to get to first, that he wants us to be able to read rather than watch first. Um, hmm. So, yeah, the, I guess the question is, what might it be? Of course, a lot of people are hoping Sansa. that it's that serious Sansa chapter. It's yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of leaning toward, like, maybe a third Barristan, possibly, if Barristan yeah. actually dies God. in season five. Alternatively, we can put the two season five new things together, and it's a chapter of Jamie and Brienne's new child, Drake. <laughs> Mallard <laughs> or Daisy. guarantee that it's not. Is it, we can pretty much guarantee it's not Jamie and Brienne. Imagine if we actually come Damn to it. season five and all of a sudden there's a love child. When did that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly, Nine's pregnant. I'd be like, starts nine months after. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> oh, yeah. Nine months like the later. Best thing ever. Oh God, I'll be. So, I will feel so like so so mad if we don't actually get to see that on screen. <laughs> I just cut to nine months later, and Brian's knocked out with Jamie's love oh, child. God. Oh. Little baby Mallard. <laughs> How adorable is it that George uses live journals still? <laughs> like, Jesus. Oh, oh, so you know what's interesting? Pretty much your grandpa. He has a Twitter, but he doesn't actually run it. So he prefers to use, you know, he's back in the 90s. He's back on Uses life. Twitter to promote his live journal. He uses, he uses Twitter to make people believe he's going to release wins over Christmas. <laughs> I'm never going to forget. Forever bitter. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so I think that's it for the news stuff. Uh, big news with the duck and <laughs> maybe some more excerpts. Um, let's go to some thank yous. Is that you, Eon? Yeah, I got them. Um, our first one is from Doxa. She says, "Hi, ladies. Love the latest podcast. Fresh and feisty as ever." I particularly enjoyed the discussion about Stannis invading King's Landing and that feeling of not being sure who should win. I remember when I read the books, I was all for Stannis kicking, kicking some ass and taking some names. But the thing that really had me nervous that was... That cat. What? Sorry. <laughs> 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 no, it's not. It's, yeah. It's Vince's high. Finn's a Stannis fan, too. You <laughs> Who isn't? <laughs> he agrees. Oh. 
But the thing that really had me nervous was what happened to Sansa. I'm always looking out for my baby girl. Cersei and her unwanted murder-suicide pact be damned. Talk about some good suspense. I also have a quick little story to share. I was looking at the season five gif of Brienne beating the dude up on horseback and said to my husband, who's going to win? Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking Brienne, that's who. And my husband replied, I bet Jamie would like to fuck Brienne. Yeah, he would. (laughs) Yeah, he would. (laughs) Yeah. My husband may be a quiet JB shipper. I know I married him for a reason. Thank you all for continuing to be awesome, and I look forward to hearing you all squawk while you lace your courses. <laughs> Yours truly, Doxa. Oh, Thank, that's you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, our next, our last one is from Speak and Span 89. She says, Hi, ladies. Just wanting to drop by with some love for the podcast. I always appreciate behind the scenes tidbits as well as the varying opinions. Thanks to your discussion on the- Theon's arc, I have gone from loathing him to basically neutral and sympathetic. That being said, I really don't care about John. And despite <laughs> everything, I am still a Danny fan, ducks. <laughs> However, I definitely agree that Amelia Clark is far from the strongest character on the show. I'm sure everyone is familiar with the brevity short on reading A Song of Ice and Fire, but just in case some people haven't seen it, um, I was wondering if you'd like to share it on Tumblr. It seems relevant with the show overtaking the books. Have you I seen think it? I can do that. I, I haven't seen it. We should do that. I was supposed um, to share on. I've seen it. Actually, I think there's a rape joke in that, so I don't know if we'll reblog it, but mm. it, yeah, I, I get where she's going. Awesome okay. message regardless. Yeah, thank yeah. you so much. I totally oh, forgot to share that YouTube video of Jorah. <laughs> Jorah's music video. <laughs> Oh, you mean Braun? Braun's music video, sorry. But, uh, she ended with, I can't wait to see what season five brings, and I'll be eagerly awaiting your commentary. Again, I appreciate that the podcast is in a hive mind, and that you feature diverse opinions on the characters. Thanks again for all that you do. Aww. Thank you. Aww, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. We let, let Kyle come on once in a while and defend Danny. We're really We nice. do. We do. I didn't even defend her today. I know. I was going to say, what'd she do that? <laughs> actually, it was kind of a shitty episode for her. Let's you were honest. actually a proponent <laughs> of the fan that they give her less screen time. <laughs> well, yeah, she was like, bench her. <laughs> Just bench her. <laughs> I'm a shipper, not a moron. <laughs> I'm everyone to that. <laughs> we have corrupted her. Uh, thank you for the email. It. Or message. I'm not sure how that one came in. Thank you. That was Tumblr, yeah. Thank you. Tumblr. All right. So that's it. Um, If you'd like to send us a message, you can at closethedoorand at gmail.com. You can also find us on Tumblr at closethedoorandcomehere.tumblr.com. Follow us on Twitter at doorpodcast. Uh, Be sure to like and review us on iTunes. That always makes our day. And, uh, well, thank you, Guile, for guesting. Yeah, please, guys. Going into season five, please, if you can, give us a review on iTunes because it helps people see us when they search on iTunes for like Game of Thrones podcast. It would be really great. We've been holding out that review. I mean, do we? I don't know. Should anyone ever see us? It's a really good question. But if you've been holding on to a review that you really want to throw out there, we would love it right now. 
Can I add a disclaimer? Um, We only want five-star ratings. Thank you. (laughs) I accept less than five-star reviews. I don't. Don't listen to Chicky. (laughs) All right. Uh, Okay, let's wrap this up then. Thank you, Guile, for guesting. Thanks for having me. Sorry I called everyone morons. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll Where edit that out. That? Just kidding. Near the end, you'll you'll hear. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, panel. Thanks, moderator. All right, thanks, have moderator. a good one. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Bye. 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 Bye.